it was pretty certain if they were doing okay in another, you know, eight to 12 months, they were going to be able to raise their next round. Now we're not counting on that. We're basically saying, think of this as your last money, divide what money you have by 18 to 24 months runway, and, and that's it. Founder turned funder, from head of digital ventures of the BBC to managing director of Techstars to now managing partner of Everywhere Ventures, formerly called The Fund, with 250 portfolio companies and counting. Jenny Fielding is the ultimate community builder and investor. Together with Scott Harley, Jenny is today pursuing a global strategy, even as US VCs have taken a step back from deals abroad, launching a new $25 million fund to be the first check-in for startups building in the future of money, health, and work. What does investing as a community mean? What do we think about the upset we're hearing about YC's new terms? How do you manage 500 limited partner investors in your fund? And what is Jenny's deepest insecurity? We cover it all and more. Get smarter, get inspired with Billion Dollar Moves. Jenny, I mean, you uh, like to call yourself an empath. You know, that was really what brought you to technology of all things. Tell us a little bit more about, you know, your crucible moments that got you to where you are today. Yeah, well, first of all, thank you, Sarah, for having me. It's um, it's really exciting to be here and, and love your show. Um, so, you know, I call myself an empath because I didn't set out to start a company. I definitely didn't set out to, you know, be a founder. I set out to solve a problem, right? And like many founders out there, um, they just have this burning desire to, you know, see the world differently. And that was um, my situation as I was spending nights and weekends building a technology that was going to solve a problem that I had, a pain point for myself. So I call those, those the empaths. So it was 2007. Um, I would not say New York was the bastion of startup technology. And I just wanted to see this problem solved. And so I, um, you know, set up in my apartment, as many founders do, bootstrapped while I still had a full-time job at a large, you know, banking institution. And next thing you know, I'm a startup founder. Definitely was different than the plan. <laughs> Yeah, and, and I love that. And, you know, actually, a lot of our listeners tuning in would have this similar predicament where they think of themselves to be entrepreneurial. But of course, uh, even coming from Asia, you know, where, where a lot of our listeners are, the expectation of success is to first, after graduation, go get a stable job, right, and, and get into leadership. But how do you, you know, how did you decide that this was the time this was the problem to double down on. So, you know, like many, went to law school, you know, found myself working at, at a big company. Um, and for some reason, I guess I've always fancied myself very entrepreneurial. So even though, you know, I was working at big companies, I was always the one to start projects and push the envelope and not just kind of do the work that was in front of me, but to kind of think about what was next. So I had an entrepreneurial spirit, which um, sometimes can uh, lead to you being the troublemaker <laughs> at a larger organization because, you know, people want to put you in a box or they want you just to do the work that's in front of you. Um, but you kind of can find those little sparks in, in people, um, even the, in those big companies. And I was one of those people that, that always had the spark. And so when I decided to start my company, I didn't really know what venture capital was. There weren't really angel investors and those types of folks in New York. So when I had to raise capital, who did I go to? I went to some of my clients at the large bank who always said, oh, Jenny, you're so entrepreneurial, like go start a company. So a lot of my inspiration actually came from um, the people I surrounded myself with. And, you know, these were large um, families and family offices that we were kind of managing money for, but they saw that entrepreneurial spark in me as well. So I think between that um, and maybe my family, 
family who um, were all not tech entrepreneurs, but they both, you know, both my parents worked for themselves. So you decided to double down on the problem of uh, international calling, as I hear it. Tell us more a little bit about that whole experience of then transitioning to become the CEO, the founder and, you know, the maker of your destiny, ultimately. I was trying to solve a, a personal problem that I had, which at the time, you know, the iPhone had just launched and, um, you know, making international calls was was pretty expensive. And so a lot of my my passion really just came from the fact that I just thought it was so crazy that this very kind of problem that really impacted many people, but was actually quite simple to solve wasn't. And so, um, yeah, set out with um, two folks that were uh, more technical than than I was, but also saw the opportunity and, um, and, and started the company. So I will say that, you know, we bootstrapped the company at first. Um, I was working full time at a large bank as we launched the, the company. And at some point, you know, as we started to get some revenue and some publicity and all these things, it was like, okay, I think you got to leave. Um, and so that seems to be kind of a, a theme in my career. Um, I also launched my own venture fund while I had a full-time job, you know, at another venture fund. My pattern is kind of in this bootstrap. And everyone says, you know, there's there's a lot of talk around, well, bootstrapping, I don't necessarily, you know, have the resources to do that. There's many ways to kind of bootstrap your business. And one is to do nights and weekends, um, as I, you know, was able to do. And tell us more about what happened then, you know, you what what did you I guess what did you learn about yourself when you were a founder, a first time founder? So you have your high highs and your low lows. And I think when you, you know, you work at a big company, you might have those over the course of a year or several months, you know, you have, you have good times and bad. As a founder, you often have that in the same day, you'll get this incredible customer, you know, things will be great, all of a sudden, your your whole back end goes down. And you know, you think that it's all over. So the highs and the lows um, are very uh, quick and not necessarily spread out. So you definitely learn resilience, um, I think is, is one of the big learnings. Um, and I'd say the other thing is that you have to always be kind of, you know, thinking ahead. So solving a problem today is, is fine, but really thinking like, okay, what does the world look like in five, 10 years? And for us, our thesis was that, you know, everyone was going to have a supercomputer in their pocket, which at the time when we started, most people had flip phones and they kind of thought mm, a phone is for calling, right? But we had this vision of like what the world looks like, you know, down the road. And so I think always being able to see the path ahead and or articulate a world that doesn't exist is something that's fundamental. It's one of the things that I look for um, when I'm investing in founders. And I think I learned that firsthand, you know, as a, a founder myself. That's actually a good segue. I was going to ask you, you've sort of taken a dual uh, role. You've been in the investor seat, you've been in the founder seat, and also actually a teacher seat, right? Uh, in in Colombia as a professor. How has all of these roles informed your investing today? When I started my company in New York, everyone said, you know, New York's a terrible place to run a company, um, go out to Silicon Valley. And I looked around even in 2007, where there was no kind of entrepreneurial community, and there was no, you know, venture here. But I looked around and I said, Okay, well, what is it? You know, what do you need to actually start a company. So you need customers. New York has a fair amount of those. You need partners, like every multinational is based here. Um, you need capital. So if there isn't venture capital, there's a lot of other capital in New York, right? There's financial banks, there's real estate, there's a lot of rich people in New York. And then there's talent, right? And there's incredible engineering schools and, and all types of talent in New York. So um, I think my real learning was like, you can... Um, builds entrepreneurial communities everywhere. You can have incredibly large um, companies no matter where. And I think 
back in 2007, people were like, no, I think if you're going to do tech, you need to go to the Valley. And so that started to inform our thesis and why we're now called Everywhere Ventures is we believe that innovation is everywhere. Capital has been constrained in the past to places like the Valley, and now it's really kind of opening up. And so that kind of opening up is really the future. And we, um, you know, we are hopefully a small part of that. Yeah, and and I love how you sort of picked on the communities. Of course, that is a, a big theme. When it, whenever I I talk to someone about Jenny, you know, uh, the the theme of community, of building community, nurturing community, of course, comes up. You know, that's almost become a theme in your life in the many chapters, including uh, being MD of TechStars. Tell us a little bit more about your view of community and why you're so bullish on on this approach. As I said, I, I started off in a community that was not um, really thriving. And you look at New York now, second largest tech ecosystem and, you know, just an incredible place to run a company. But it happened to happen step by step. And so sometimes I'll run into, you know, some of the, the kind of old school people um, from back in the early 2000s. And we kind of laugh because there wasn't much there and we just brick by brick had to build. Um, I also had the privilege of living in London um, in the early 2000s as that kind of ecosystem was coming together. And I saw, you know, all the different parts it took, you know, the corporates that were um, pitching in, the VCs that started to move there, the the entrepreneurs. And so, you know, this kind of confluence of people and things has has to happen. And so I've, I've been really excited about that for a long time. And when I was at Techstars, I did something a little bit different. So most of the managing directors who ran uh, their programs would really focus on their ecosystem systems and cultivating those. And, and that's great. I took a very different approach, which was I used all my budget to go around the world to as many events as I could, um, to startup weekends, to be a judge. I mean, literally while I was at Techstars, I went everywhere. Um, and I just met founders on the ground. I met other investors and I started developing relationships again, little by little in, you know, 20, 30 communities. Um, and that's really paid off, but it hasn't been this, you know, oh, now we're investing everywhere. This has been now a decade of my life kind of building relationships in places around the world to kind of get the word out to really understand, you know, who's on the ground, who are the builders, who do we need to know, who can we support, who can we connect up with our communities. I mean, that's, I think, one of my superpowers is that, you know, I'll meet a founder in Brazil and I'll say, oh, wow, you know, you've got to meet one of our companies that's based in London. And so stitching together, um, you know, that those communities is something that I love to do. And I think I think um, I really got a, um, a great foundation for it at Techstars, which is a worldwide network, right? So they run 50 programs around the world. And so I got to kind of experience that firsthand. And that really informed, you know, where we are now with our... Now hold that thought. Finding a service solution that helps you keep customers happy can feel impossible. Like trying to remember the name of that guy you literally just met at a networking event. HubSpot's all-new service hub can help with their service solution part at least. It brings service and success together on one powerful platform. With an AI-powered help desk and chatbot to help you handle your frontline tickets so you can scale support and drive retention and revenue. We love the sound of those things. Visit hubspot.com service to learn more. 
and I'm curious to know a little bit more about your, you know, your learnings and building community. I think you've said this before. Uh, it's easy to say that you're a community builder, but to actually be recognized as a community builder, um, that, that's an element of intangibility in that. What, what have you learned in community building? Sort of what's the secret sauce? How do you actually do this in a way that's sustainable? Building community is hard, not to meet people, but to engage with people. And so, you know, our biggest, you know, the biggest challenge that that we have um, at our fund and in general as community builders is, again, it's pretty easy to, you know, to go around, meet interesting people, but how do you stay engaged with them in a systematic way? And so at our fund, we've taken a very uh, technology forward approach. So we've built a suite of collaborative tools for our community, which is now 250 companies and 500 founder LPs. Right. So think of it as a community of a thousand people. We've built our tools online and whether it's, you know, our Slack channel, our Airtable, um, all of the, the kind of tools that we've built for our founders and our investors and our you know, community to engage, we think that the future of community is really async. And that's what's able, that's how you're able to connect you know, global communities is that it doesn't have to be kind of in real time in person. So we do a ton of um, in-person events. We probably do one a week. But I think what really keeps people together are the discussions that are happening virtually. Yeah. So let's take a step back here. I mean, we, we jumped right into it, into how you're thinking about building uh, the fund. What's the vintage of the very, very first uh, fund that you put together? 2018. Mm-hmm. We started it in New York City and um, we had 50 founder LPs support us. And the mission was really to invest in the next generation of New York-based companies. So that was our, our kind of pilot to see, hey, will this actually work? Um and that fund has been around for now five years, um, fully deployed. And I can tell you, it's an incredible fund. We have, you know, a, just beautiful, amazing companies that are, you know, rising stars in their categories. Um, and we've been just so lucky to, to support that community. And so as things were starting to work, we kind of looked at each other and uh, we said, I wonder, you know, if we can do this other places. We, we were getting hundreds and hundreds of emails from founders around the world saying, I love this by founder four founder ethos in the community and the fund that you've built, um, you know, love to get involved in something here, kind of fill in the blank. And we were getting, you know, inquiries from founders around the world. Um, and so finally, you know, my co-founder and I thought, well, you know what, if there's if there's pull, right, as opposed to push, maybe this can work in other places. Um, so our second fund, which is 2020 Vintage, we have about 10 or 12 locations around the world where we've activated nodes of founders, same, um, you know, same format where we have local founder LPs supporting the next generation of, of local local founders. And we use that through a distributed venture partner model that that works pretty well. So that was kind of our our second fund was based on on that premise. And uh, yeah, we learned a lot um, going global quite quickly. Um, and I think that's informed really where we are today. So this model, I mean, you, this is your work every day, but this is not a traditional VC model, right? Where you have what, what you even call founder LPs. I mean, we see um, sort of Endeavor um, do versions of this, but of course, it, again, they have a rules-based fund that's slightly different, but it is built on community uh, where do, they do get their founders to to invest as well. How were you thinking about, I guess, the role of the founders L, founder LPs? Were they actively sourced? for you? Our thesis was that if you have people that are contributors, then you're not just going to get money out of them, but you're going to get 
support, right? And so the support that our LPs are able to offer is, you know, kind of twofold. First is that they're the top of the funnel, right? So they're in their geographies, they're seeing interesting companies, and they're able to surf it to us while we're not there, right? So I may not be in Egypt, but we're seeing really interesting deal flow from Egypt because we have LPs there that are founders on the ground, builders, and they're seeing what's happening in their community. So top of the funnel, really important. The second is diligence, right? Again, harder for me to diligence a company in Egypt because I'm not there, I'm not part of those networks. But if we've got a community of you know, 20, 30 founders on the ground, they can quickly help us triangulate who the people are because again, we're in the people business at this stage, we're doing pre-seed investing, so super early. So having boots on the ground is like critical, but we don't want to have boots on the ground that, you know, are that that we hire, right? We want those people to be part of our community. Those people have all given us cash um, or we've given them money as, um, as founders. So we create these kind of nodes in different places where they're top of the funnel, and then their diligence. And then the last piece is that they help us support the portfolio because they're obviously in those locations. Sounds simple, but it's, it's of course, very complex, right, to be managing all these different nodes. And I guess it's in the core team that is sort of your HQ. How many people do you have? It's you, Scott, and a couple of associates? Under Scott, and then we have two folks on our team, a head of community and a head of operations. And then we've got about 32 venture partners around the world. Right. Um, and those are kind of our eyes and ears on the ground and help us galvanize, you know, the communities in those places. So to give you an example, uh, South by Southwest, for instance, um, you know, for example, happens in Austin, Texas. So for South by Southwest, we've got um, probably 40 or 50 um, founder LPs in, in Texas. And we have a portfolio of about a dozen companies there. And so we decided what we wanted to do for South by was we wanted to hold office hours so that we could meet other people in the community. We hosted office hours for underrepresented founders. We want more diverse founders in our portfolio. Now, this was all organized by our team on the ground. So they were able to get a sponsor for this because there was a big lunch. They were able to you know, put up all of the, the information infrastructure that would need to happen, which is an office, a submission form, all this kinds of stuff. And they were able to do the office hours. Now, Scott and I were not at South by Southwest this year, sad for us, but isn't that, it's amazing that we can have high impact events and community and interactions and not actually have to be there. And so what we're trying to pioneer is something that we call the many-to-many -many model as opposed to one-to-many. So traditional venture capital is, you know, you have one GP, you have two GPs, and then you've got a portfolio. And everyone has to support the portfolio, and that's really hard to add value. What we have is we have a community of 500 people and they're supporting a portfolio, a large portfolio. So we call it a many-to-many -many model as opposed to a one-to-many. It's not Jenny and Scott supporting a portfolio of 250. It's this massive community of like, you know, 500, 700 founders that are supporting that larger portfolio. So it's kind of a, just a different way to, to think about it. Yeah, and I love that. And, and how are they incentivized? Is there a carry interest that's structured as part of this deal with them? Um, so we have venture partners who um, are participate in our carry, but otherwise our LPs are are not. Well, they're invested to to see the as as LPs, right? To see the investment do well. Correct. Yeah, love it. Well, you're definitely taking a different approach, and I think that definitely is your your secret sauce. Then, and, and love how you're galvanizing truly a community to do this. But what were some of your challenges? What were some of your learnings if you were to sort of speak to a new GP coming into the fold here? 
our biggest challenge was going from all founder supported. So fund one and fund two, all founder capital to fund three is probably 75% founder capital, 25% family offices and fund of funds. And, you know, as you raise a larger funds, we just announced our $25 million um, fund three. As you raise larger funds, you have to take in larger checks as well. And so that comes with more complexity, um, more expectations and kind of just a different format. So I think as we were fundraising, although we raised the funds quite quickly, we raised in about 10 weeks, we spoke to a lot of um, more institutional investors and a lot of them really didn't understand the model or they just wanted to see the old model, right? So kind of the mentality, you don't get fired for investing or buying IBM or whatever that saying is, right? So, you know, they're deploying capital on behalf of families and, and other institutions. And so if the model worked before, kind of looking like a traditional seed fund, two, two GPs, 25 investments, you know, kind of there's a formula, why shake up the formula? So I think that was our biggest challenge. Um, what was good about that, actually, Sarah, was that People either get it and love it or they just don't like it. And so I think a lot of fund managers kind of get the runaround from LPs and they get strung along. And we don't actually get that so much. Like people get it and they want to be part of this kind of new wave or they think it's too radical and they don't like it. And so we can, you know, just part ways. What you really want when you're out in the market there fundraising is you want to get a quick no. A quick yeah. yes or or a quick no. I mean, the, the critique of LPs is that it's very opaque. Uh, you know, you meet one family office, it's one family office. And that's part of the work that we do, you know, and, and really trying to build transparency to that. So tell us a little bit more now, I mean, about the thesis and how you've honed into it. I mean, when you, I was looking at your portfolio with the fund, uh, it was very much a, a generalist view and, and yeah. somewhat still is. Uh, and you're going at, at it in a way uh, where when the markets petered out on, on you know, looking beyond domestic markets, you are actually going global. Tell us a little bit about the thesis and your belief on, you know, where the world's heading. Yeah. So um, definitely, (laughs) you're never taking an easy path, right? Um, We could be doubling down on the US. Um, You know, the truth is about 70% of our investments are North America right now, and about 30% are our rest of the world. So it's not quite as radical as it sounds, but we're huge believers that emerging markets are, you know, going to be driving a lot of the innovation and the opportunity, right? And so we're not investing, we're pre-seed investors, first check-in. So we're not investing for what's happening today. Our view is that in the next five, 10 years, these markets will, you know, be even bigger and stronger and dominant in some ways, right? And so we're kind of investing for the future. So that's that's where we stand in terms of kind of our global um, framework. And then we looked across our portfolio of, you know, 200 plus companies um, and we said, okay, where are the outliers coming from and why? And so they directionally fell into three buckets, which I call the table stakes economy. What do you actually need to live? And so we distill that down to money, health, and work. We are doubling down in this fund three on those verticals. Directionally, fintech, we've always been, you know, big believers that, you know, every company is going to be a fintech company. Digital health, right? We think that's, you know, very important um, shift that's happening and obviously just important for the world. And then the last one, future of work, which for us is really about, you know, automation and whether that's vertical SaaS or new modalities of, of kind of, you know, work, we think that that's, you know, very technology driven and we're excited about that category as well. So that's where we're focused for fund three and kind of maps to where we've seen a lot of success in the portfolio. And when you think about your outliers, and I'm thinking about, you know, companies 
like headway here that was uh, backed by Andreessen, right? And, and something I think it was 100x uh, from your entry valuation. So congrats to that. When you think about some of your outliers, what were the, uh, I guess, common characteristics? What's interesting about our fund one is it's not necessarily one or two companies that are driving um, our top our top performance there. It's really about a dozen companies. I'd say the common thread is, one, they have this view of the world, right, that may not exist. Um, and so they're kind of talking about where things are going, not necessarily where things are. The second is that they're resilient. A lot of these folks have not had the the quintessential easy life. Actually, most of them haven't, you know, gone to Harvard and Stanford and all these things. They've had to really claw their way to, to where they are. And that's built a lot of, you know, resilience. And so I think, you know, those are kind of the two drivers. And then I'd say the last one, which is important is, you know, we're looking for these fast founders that respond quickly to data. So it's not about, you know, being coachable or listening to what I say. It's about, okay, like you might be an empath and really like feel like this product needs to exist, but you have to go by the data, right? And if the data is pointing you in one direction, you need to quickly be able to, you know, turn your focus there. And so I think those are the three characteristics we're looking for in founders. And they've, you know, they've really mapped to some of our outliers. You know, we have one company, um, a founder uh, who's from Venezuela, right? And he, you know, had to leave essentially because he couldn't, you know, he couldn't live in the country anymore. And his family, um, you know, he had challenges getting his family out. And so just that resilience to, you know, still be the optimist that he is to come to the U.S. to have to start again and to, you know, build build his skill set, build his language learning, like all these things were really hard, but it's gotten him to this place. So I think we love, you know, founders with that type of DNA. Absolutely. And actually immigrant founders, uh, I was looking at a fund deck recently and it's it's a high percentage of immigrant founders that are in the top quartile of uh, you know top performing startups so definitely you know grit and resilience there is important now I want to turn tact a little bit uh, because you're investing in such an early stage uh, one of the recent uh, I guess rumblings around this stage is uh, the valuations the new terms that Y Combinator ha- has put out there what, what are your thoughts on that? It's not really as bad as most people are saying, I think. They're offering $500,000, which is a lot of money to get your business off the ground. And if that crowds out some other investors, then, you know, I think that's fine, right? Um, Investors have to earn their spot on your cap table. So I'm not so worried about it. I think it's, you know, it's good for founders um, and that the market really has gotten um, quite frothy. And then I think many founders would be happy with that deal kind of going forward as, you know, capital gets more constrained. And speaking of capital constraint, I mean, this is an interesting time. What was the Silicon Valley bank run and, uh, you know, the the banking issues that are starting to unfold? uh, There will be long term issues that will come out from this. What are your thoughts on, you know, what happened there and how this will impact venture moving forward? Well, I think someone should start a next-gen, amazing, founder-focused venture debt fund because there's going to be a lot of opportunity there. Silicon Valley Bank really was a huge supporter of founders, you know, resources, banking products, and then, of course, venture debt. And so, you know, when the venture debt went away, I feel like that leaves a huge hole. Um, you know, in terms of SVB, obviously it was quite you know traumatic for, for many people. Um, about a third of our portfolio, so a third of our 250 companies were banking at SVB, so that was quite scary. Um, we ourselves had an SVB account, although we didn't have the majority of our, our funds there, but, you know, it did impact us as well. I think it all just gave us a bit of pause um, in terms of things move really fast in startup world. And, you know, something that we took for granted, 
which is, you know, just ha- where you're banking, right? Your, your basic governance is now kind of come back to the forefront. So it's some of the questions that we're now, you know, asking founders, trying to support founders with to make sure that their infrastructure is sound, right? So I think it was a scary moment. I think we all learned a, a hard lesson about diversification. <laughs> And I mean, because you have this unique global view, uh, and this was very much a U.S. issue that definitely created uh, fear. I mean, I was getting texts from uh, a lot of the LPs that we work with that were, you know, uh, global investors thinking about what the trickle down effect would be as well. What did you say to your LPs, I guess, as you were dealing with this issue on how this will impact uh, the market, the work that you do? It's not really what we said to LPs, but it's how we said it. And we were very quick to mobilize. We spun up a Slack channel. We had hundreds of messages from our founders um, being uh, exchanged within minutes. Um, we were trying to get information to our founders. We were being very communicative with our LPs, assuring them that our cash actually was not at risk, but that we were, of course, working with our founders. So I think in these these situations, you really um, can kind of step up and you see who the leaders are and and who who are not. And I felt like we um, we did a pretty good job um, taking you know taking a leadership position, trying to support our founders and just being very communicative with our LPs. And our LPs were just wonderful and and just very supportive. Now hold that thought. Talking to Loud, hosted by Chris Savage, is brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. On this podcast, Chris Savage, Wistia CEO and loudest talker, takes you inside the minds of entrepreneurs as they share the hilarious, informative, and most challenging aspects of building more human brands. Everything we love here at Billion Dollar Moves. Now, an episode I loved recently was the one with guest Joe LeMay, jiu-jitsu-loving entrepreneur and co-founder of Rocketbook. He talks about how an airplane epiphany took him on a wild ride that started with a Shark Tank flop but ended with a $50 million exit. You know that's our jam. Listen to it, Talking Too Loud, wherever you get your podcasts. And has market sentiment, I mean, everything from discussion around TikTok to right putting a lens on on where technology is heading, the, the valuations being uh, a lot lower than they were during the sort of height of the froth and combined with all these issues that we're dealing with. How has the market sentiment informed, you know, how are you thinking about your investing moving forward? I mean, the truth is, as of today, April, in the early stage pre-seed and seed, we haven't seen valuations come down very much. I think we've seen some other trends, rounds taking longer to close and, you know, some other things that we we need to you know be careful about, um, but we haven't really seen a compression at the early stage. So for us, it's business as usual. Um, we're pretty actively deploying. I think we're closing um, you know two or three of our core checks just this month. Um, so we think it's a great time to invest. But you know, I think we're so early, and so you have to you know I, we're not market timers, so we're not trying to say like oh we got in at a eight instead of a 10 or a six instead of an eight. Like, you know, we're getting in early. We're trying to invest in massive opportunities that um, can be multi-billion dollar companies. And for us, you know, getting in early is, is good enough. We don't necessarily have to try to time the market, which I think some investors I hear are trying to do by not deploying because they think prices will be compressed. So they think the thing that we are trying to do is make sure that our founders are adequately capitalized, whereas the last few years, we haven't had to worry about that as much, right? So if the founder got a pre-seed round together, it was pretty certain if they were doing okay in another, you know, eight to 12 months, they were going to be able to raise their next round. Now we're not counting on that. 
that, we're basically saying, think of this as your last money. Divide what money you have by 18 to 24 months runway, and, and that's it. That's all you have to spend. And you need to hit the milestones, whatever those are for your particular industry, to get to the next level. That makes a lot of sense. And I love how, how you put that statement out. Think of this as your, as your last check and make it work. I love that because, like you said, right back in the day, you know, first of all, you, you don't think that wherever you put your money, I mean, times have changed drastically, right? You don't think about the bank possibly losing the money that you put in there. And then also the fact that people that used to hit the, the milestones would expect, okay, I'm going to raise again in the next 12 months, right? Uh, so that has certainly changed the narrative here. I need this amount of money to run the business. I'm like, well, you got to figure out how to do it on half because you got to make that runway last. So, you know, really focused on being lean right now and having at least an eye to what a sustainable business looks like if you can't raise venture capital. Interesting times indeed. And I have some interesting questions to follow. These are uh, quick fire type questions. Uh, so first thing that comes to mind, billion dollar questions for Jenny Fielding. Are you ready, Jenny? <laughs> All right. What do people get wrong about you? <laughs> they think I'm kind of harsh, but I'm actually like a softy at heart. I just have a, a harsh exterior. Ah, okay. Uh, what keeps you up at night still? Um, worrying that some really good founders are not going to be able to get funded in this environment. A moment you felt like giving up? When I was running my startup, I had some really dark moments, including some hard discussions with co-founders, with investors. And I just thought, wow, I don't know if this is worth it. What is the hardest discussion that you've ever had to have? Parting ways with a co-founder. Hmm. What did you learn from that? That you probably have waited too long. <laughs> as hard as it is, you like to give people a chance. But at the end of the day, um, mostly when you need to part ways or fire someone, you've probably waited too long. What's an opinion you have that most people don't agree with? That you can have massive opportunity, a huge fund, um, and still invest globally as two people. I love it. A habit that you have that has changed your life or that you've picked up recently that has changed your life? I started running again. So I hadn't run after many years because of an injury, but I'm just like, just loving it. Endorphins are great. And um, it just really gives me a lot of energy. What's your morning routine on that note? Well, I try to run not too often, but, you know, probably three, three days a week. Otherwise, Pilates, walking, just uh, exercise, getting out. So even in the freezing cold New York, I'm always walking everywhere. What's your biggest insecurity? That I don't know if I'm good at this job. <laughs> because, you know, it takes a long time um, to see returns, right, when you're the first check-in. So we're investing for the future. So I'm always insecure that, you know what, maybe, Jenny, you're just not that good at this. You should go back to, you know starting companies, running companies. Ah, that's the, the hardest because the feedback loop of venture, first of all, <laughs> it is, a, is a long one, right? I mean, it's between the funds and being the first check-in, as you said. Uh, well, keep at it, keep at it. I mean, I, I hope you feel that every day with the founders that you work with, that you are building towards uh, something truly great here. Finally, what makes you happy? That's a good one. Um, I think just doing the work that I love, like I'm someone that even when there's like this week taxes to do, I wake up every morning <laughs> and I kind of look in the mirror and I'm like, wow, I have the best job in the world. I get to meet with people that are 10 times smarter than me, you know, so passionate about what they're doing, trying to change the world. And like, that's the coolest job anyone could ever have. And with that, what what is your final, I guess, uh, final advice to 
a next generation leader, a GP or a founder that's tuning in on how they should lead their life? Yeah, I mean, I think I've never taken a traditional path. I've always had to, you know, kind of operate at um, at my speed. And so um, I would just say, like, you know, you don't have to be a cookie cutter. You don't have to take the same path that everyone is telling you. And so, you know, find what you're passionate about and figure out how you're going to get there. But the path to that may not be linear. Ah, love that. Well, Jenny, that was an excellent point to end on. Progress is never linear and you should never compare yourself to uh, someone's chapter 10 when you're at chapter one, as, as I hear it. But uh, I'm really grateful for your time and really excited for the billion dollar moves that I know you will make. Awesome. Thank you so much, Sarah. This was really fun. And thanks so much for tuning in this week. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and follow our socials on Sarah Chen Global to get the latest on the show. It would really help me out too if you enjoyed this to rate and review our show on Apple Podcasts and share your favorite episodes with a friend. I'm Sarah Chen Spellings and you've been listening to Billion Dollar Moves.